Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Wright. (laughs) If I had a dime. (laughs) You'd have one dime. (laughs) Still funny. Hi, Andy. Yes, hi. How are you? I am. I'm good. Now I, la- go I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. <sighs> nice, nice mm. pull. Mm. Nice pull. Uh, now, last week we did our follow up in the middle of the show. <laughs> so I just want to yeah. get this out of the way. Do you have anything you feel like you missed? Any uh, you know open ends that you want to wrap up? Boy, you know, now that you ask me, I feel like I should say no and then Wait. bring it up in the middle anyway. Yeah, you should. <laughs> ah! Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you know. You know I, I actually do have one. Of course you do. And it's, it's another follow-up to Tom Hanks because, I mean, why not keep talking about Tom Hanks, right? <laughs> are, you, are you serious? Uh, it's, I, You're I, serious. I I, I'm afraid to bring it up, but... Have you seen the Tom Hanks video that Buckwheat Groats did? No. It's like they're like hardcore rap. And I can't say I, I really don't think we should put the link anywhere. If people feel the need to go watch it, they can find it themselves. It's a it's a rap group that's definitely uh not safe for work. It's the but they it's they're <laughs> praising Tom Hanks. Yes, and it, but it's basically, you know, rappers with their hose in very little clothes, and Tom Hanks's face is CG'd onto all of them as he's, you know, spanking butts and, you know, all that, and Meg Ryan's face is imposed on some of the ladies, and it's, it's, it's raunchy and it's wrong in every way, and I, I only find it funny because my wife sent it to me thinking that, uh, she's like, here, watch this, you're welcome, it's kind of one of those uh-huh. emails. And so I went yeah. and watched it. I'm like, oh, Tom Hanks. Somebody you know, did a video and put Tom Hanks in it. So I watched it, and I wrote her back. I'm like, that was possibly the most <laughs> – that was like taking everything good about my life and just taking a big old crap on it. So thanks for that. <laughs> it, it really is like horrible and, and quite tasteless, unless you're really into you know that hardcore rap that I'm not. But Tom Hanks' son is. His son Chet is in the rap biz and – I guess he actually tweeted out that he loves the video and thinks it's hilarious and all that sort of stuff. And I, I can't say if somebody did that with my dad, I think it was great, but you know, I know he likes it anyway. That's I, my, <laughs> I can't, I actually can't talk right now because I'm watching it <laughs> on mute. Oh my God. Yeah. What are they doing? Even Steven Spielberg gets this a moment in there. Horrible. <laughs> it really is. This is really horrible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, all ages of Hanks. They take Hanks from every age. Oh, Tom Hanks just hit that person. 
Yeah. He is drinking a whole bottle of wine with Uzis. Yeah, he's got the Uzis blasting. Steven Spielberg is spanking that person. <laughs> this is... Uh, this yeah, is... his son, Tom Hanks' son, Chester, uh, a.k.a. Chet Hayes. <gasps> Tom Hanks just shot that guy. <laughs> he tweeted, thank you for this work of genius. Hanks Nation, La Familia. It's uh, <laughs> just like, oh, okay. Woody... <laughs> yeah, they really they go all through his chronology. Is, your wife sent you this? Yes. She didn't watch it ahead of time. She oh. sent it to me. She had heard a, just a tiny clip of it on the radio and was just like, oh, this would be fun to send to him. He'd love it. He loves Tom Hanks. Wow. It was pretty. Sally Field. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. love me. You really love. Yes, they do. They, uh. They love this something. Is, uh, this is this is crazy. Mm-hmm. There yeah. are other words for that uh, that I would use. I I won't watch this again. Yeah, it's one of those things that I really hesitated even bringing up. But you know, considering it came out right after our Tom Hanks series, I'm like, okay. As much as I think it's just garbage, if someone wants to watch it, they can go Google it. I'll let them know about it. Jeez. I don't know if that's community service. <laughs> I don't know if it is either. Uh, it's it's wrong. Yeah. Many of these things are like felonies. Are the next reel, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging out with us uh, this fine evening. I'm Pete Wright. That over there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And yeah. we spoil movies every single solitary week. And uh, this week is no different. You can find out more about us at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of one Steve Sarmento and possibly future other people, which we're working on. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. And uh, you should do that. You can also join us on uh, join the conversation about movies, your favorites and ours, on your social platforms of choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow, I'm still watching it, and it's not getting better. <laughs> it won't end. Yeah, you just have to. You just have to turn it off. It's it just, uh, finally. Uh, Andy, do we have any other updates for the people? We do have one rather exciting update. Oh. Pete. This is a good one. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's time, folks. It is time for another listener's choice drawing. We have put all the names in the hat from everybody who's left us left us comments on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, uh, people who have played along on the Instagram Guess the Movie Challenge, uh, uh, iTunes. We've kind of gathered all of the the comments from and, and just all of that stuff from everywhere. We gathered everybody's names, thrown them into this great big. Uh, feral size hat, and we've. <laughs> <laughs> I think you meant ferret yeah. sized hat. Ferret size. That's a. It's the size not, of a. It's, it's the size of a ferret. That, it's not quite that small. Oh uh, yes, and uh, and uh, yeah, we've got all the names in the hat, and uh, I, I'm ready to do the drawing. Pete. Let's do the drawing. That is the best drum roll. That's that should be a ringtone right there. <laughs> but I'm the one the, recording. Suck it. <laughs> that's right. And the winner is Alexander C. Curran. 
Alexander Seeker, and come on down. That's right, man. You are going to be the next person giving us a movie to talk about for our Listener's Choice episode, which we will be recording uh, toward the end of April. I believe it's scheduled to be uh, April coming out on April 25th-ish. This is such a fun part of what we do. I This is the one I look forward to a lot. Yes, absolutely. I'm curious to see uh, you know, what people pick. I mean, we had a great experience with uh, Stephen Smart's choice of In the Mood for Love last time, and very much looking forward to see what uh, Alexander C. Curran picks for us at the end of April. So, Alexander, here's what you have to think about. First of all, we're going to try all of the various channels that we can find you, and we're going to try and schedule a time where we can get on the, uh, get on the horn with you and record an a, a interview where you can tell us what your film is and why we should be talking about it. Uh, why we should add it to the collection. So um, thank you so much for, um, you know, following along and, and uh, listening to the show and, and uh, commenting. Congratulations. And congratulations. Yes. There you go. Absolutely. Excellent. And with that, let's do trailers. Let's do them. I'm going to go first because I got to cleanse my palate. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I, I uh, raped your brain with that uh, <laughs> video. Ugh, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> uh, I am doing a, this is my pick of hope. Do you know what I mean? Pick, I hear you. I completely hear you. This is a, it's a Nick Frost film. Nick I love Frost. hearing you say that because it's exciting Great. that Nick Frost is carrying a film. I know. It makes me so happy. Nick Frost film. It's called Cuban Cuban Fury. <laughs> yeah, you got to say it like that. <laughs> he is a former salsa prodigy as he attempts to come back years after his career was ruined. Feet of fire. Uh, <laughs> and he comes back to uh, woo a uh, to woo his boss, it looks like, played by yeah. Rashida Jones uh, of uh, The Office and other things, amongst which being the daughter of Quincy. Yes. Uh, and, uh, so it look okay. So the trailer, it looks like you might expect it's a, you know, it's a comic, uh, it's what we call a comedy film. It is. It definitely is a comedy has lots of comedy in it. It does have a lot of comedy. It's directed by James Griffiths. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, James Griffiths is, he, he hasn't, well, I don't know him from much. He's a, he's a TV guy. I think he's a, yeah. a British TV guy because all the series that he does seem very short. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I yes, I, I don't know. And they, and they all have, uh, like, cute names, like a TV show called Episodes. Oh, that was the one with um, Matt LeBlanc, wasn't it? I don't I don't know that show. Is that the one? Yeah, oh, that it was, was the one. one. Yeah. That was actually yeah. not a British show. No, it, it wasn't. It, it, that's that's very funny. So, uh, anyway, so he was part of that. Um, uh, but this is it. Looks like his first feature yeah. uh, film, and uh, so it looks. You know, it's it's another one. It's a it, it, written by John Brown. Do we know of John Brown? Of the Browns. Uh, I don't he's know another of writer John Brown, of yeah. he's another writer of many TV shows, and I will tell you why I know of John Brown. Okay, he is a writer of uh, several episodes of one of my very favorite shows, Misfits. Which one is that again? It's the one where the uh, probation workers 
Uh, oh yeah. right, right, right! Super power, super power, super power, uh, uh, probation workers, criminals, right? Yeah. And they're doing community service, right? And right. Uh, so there's five seasons of this show, and he wrote uh, several of them. And I, I do love this show. Talk about it. if we were doing guilty pleasure TV shows, this would be high on my list. I, I love this show. Um, it's just horribly offensive around every corner. <laughs> Which, which is one of the things that excites me a little bit about uh, Cuban Fury. Uh, it looks like in the trailer they're teasing us with things that could possibly go uh, into the direction of being horribly offensive. It does oh, not yeah. look, however, like uh, it, it. It doesn't look like The World's End. The World's End was a <laughs> deeply doesn't. touching film. It just doesn't look like that film. But it looks like one that might give us a chuckle. And I love seeing Nick Frost uh, in the prominent placement on the poster. Absolutely. And just watching him break it out with his mad salsa dancing, it's going to be, and his, it'll be a fun one. His nemesis is played by Chris O'Dowd. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we like Chris O'Dowd very much. He's, he's yes, been in a bunch of stuff. I, you know, he was very funny on the TV show, uh, the it crowd, the it crowd. Uh, but he was also in, um, uh, recently was in Thor. He's the, the dopey assistant. And bridesmaids as the, uh, as the, the cuddly cop. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's him. right. And the sapphires came out. Uh, I think it came out in the U.S. last year, but that he got uh, a bit of notice for that one. That was a, an Australian film from uh, 2012. That, yes, uh, I think he. Uh, uh, you know, I think it helped get him on the map a little bit more. Okay, I feel I feel I better. I feel like I've shed that a little bit. It comes out right right soon, April 11th. Yes, uh, in the USA. So yes, get ready. All right. This, pod, this podcast is clean. <laughs> <laughs> Not after you get your way with it. Now you're going to bring a trailer that's just all dark. I know. What can you say? Yes. I, I'm really working, like I said last week, trying to stick with uh, found footage trailers for new uh, found footage films coming out. This is apocalyptic. A, uh, a, it looks just horribly unsettling. It is a kind of a news crew in Australia that ends up talking to this kind of crazy homeless man who tells them all about this cult, this doomsday cult that he had been a part of that lives kind of out in the forest. And so this news crew goes out to see if there's any truth to this. And they, lo and behold, it is a movie, folks. They find this this cult actually out there. And then it just, it just gets more and more unsettling as the story goes along. And I think everything about it looks creepy from the the people appearing from behind the trees dressed in those kind of robes to the horribly creepy bald man um, played by David McRae, who is uh, just a man. He's just freaky when he kind of smiles right into the lens. I just don't like looking at that. And they uh, hold just, that shot a long time. They do. They really do. It just it looks like a really interesting, uh, really creepy found footage style film that, uh, again, kind of like what we talked about um, uh last week with um with quarantine it's a news crew that is actually out there filming this and so there's a reason they're here they're kind of documenting this story it's a story they want to put out and so that is what uh, that is why they're filming this and you know i gotta say creeps me out it 
certainly does. This one, it's, you know, this one has much more of a feel of, uh, you know, it's just people traipsing around the woods. But, you know, we talked about this, uh, about how uh, kind of found footage films um, have the DNA of documentary filmmaking in them. And this film really celebrates that. Um, You know, it's, it's, it, it, it takes on the mantle of something that's trying to be very, very serious and, and uh, makes it all the, the trailer at least makes it appear all that more authentic. Yeah. Very absolutely. cool. Yeah. Pretty creepy. I don't see any release dates for it yet. It was released in Australia last year. I'm guessing it. Uh, I don't know if it is the sort of film that's going to get any theatrical release here, but I have a feeling sometime this year it'll end up popping up on VOD, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. So keep your eyes peeled for Apocalyptic. And now. <laughs> what was See, that? <laughs> uh, we take you straight to the set of the most horrific Abercrombie and Fitch ad you've ever seen. <laughs> or Sephora. Cause they... <laughs> Sephora gone awry <laughs> in New York, Cloverfield. For Rob, say something to him before he leaves. Rob's awesome. I'm gonna miss it. Rob, have fun in Japan. You owe me $11. How are you gonna survive without Rob? He's like your main dude. Yeah, now, hey, how am I gonna survive without you? I don't know, I'm like your main dude. What was that noise? It sounded like an animal. Phone calls are pouring into the New York One newsroom as a thunderous, roaring sound. Do you see something on the roof? What animal sounds like that? Shaking everywhere, man. It's like tremors. Looks like you should have left town a little bit earlier. going to be a buzzkill on this movie you're not well no i might be a little bit but i want to open positively okay Okay. i really do deeply one this is a monster film in addition to being a found footage film it is also a monster film i like the creature design Uh uh-huh i like the monster okay that's one uh two i think that what uh matt reeves did with this film is and and particularly you know the uh, cinematography by uh, michael bonvillian or bonvillain i don't think there's an extra eye in there uh, i think that the the way they play with the concepts of found footage films is really fun and you know because one of the thing one of the things we get with found footage films they are strictly linear experiences right Mm-hmm. And last week it w- we talked about quarantine. It was a strictly linear experience. There's there you don't jump around through time. It, you move from start to end. And this film, I love how they played with time and allowed us to jump back in time and cut around and 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 play with us a little bit. I really liked that. Right. So far, yeah, so good. Uh, so far, so good. Um, 
I uh, I didn't find that there was too much of the first person shooter stuff in this film. Right. So far, I think I'm uh, three or four for three or four. Right. That's got to be pretty good. I'd say so. I can't stand just about anybody in the film. (laughs) (laughs) So what? I mean, what? Really? That's what I, I did. That's what I bring. <laughs> I find buzzkill. I did, uh, that's where that's where it falls apart for me. And so that means from the very beginning. And that's why it's so hard to watch this movie because I deeply enjoy the experience of watching it, but I'm constantly slapping my forehead. With the exception, I think, of the cameraman who I I really he is somebody I am very much uh attracted to his character i think he's very funny um and and seems to be uh reasonably natural everybody else is i i just i i'm not in it <laughs> all right that's what i that you you go i agree with you for the most part um surprisingly i i really, really yeah i enjoy the monster uh quite a bit i enjoy the whole conceit of you know they J.J. Uh, Abrams, when he was, I believe, on a, a on a promotional tip trip for Mission Impossible Three over in Japan with his son, they were in a toy store, and he was amazed at how prevalent Godzilla toys still were. And this was a creature that had been created, you know, half a century before, essentially. And but they were still so drawn to that creature, and he's just like, wouldn't it be great to kind of try to create that whole feel, um, do something uh, that you know has that feel, but it's set in the United States. And so um, instead of creating another Godzilla remake, which you know somebody else is doing it anyway, so why 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 worry? Um, he, he opted to kind of do this whole other thing, kind of Cloverfield. And I love the creature. It is it is really fun. I also love the fact that it is so hidden from us uh, uh, for the film. And yes. stepping outside of the film for a moment, uh, and I think this is something we may explore a little bit later um, if we come back to it. But I really enjoyed the... Um, the marketing for this film and the secrecy that they played with at the beginning of this film. And the fact that no one really knew what this film was all about. Was it a big monster? Was it a, a nuclear disaster film? Was it Voltron? I mean, there were so many theories getting bandied about as far as what this film was going to be. What is this mysterious Cloverfield? Nobody really knew. And that was really fun. And I enjoyed the way that they built that. And so that by the time you saw the film and you actually got to see this creature stomping around, destroying uh, New York, it really was, uh, you know, a kind of a, a fun experience to have, not having really known anything about what it was about when you went into it. And I think that is another thing that lent um, a lot of the excitement about the creature in my eyes. I like that. Yes. I, you know, I think in general, the the way the film is paced relative to the creature reveal, I think is, is a real highlight of this film. It is very patient. As frenetic as the film itself is, individual sequences and running and, uh, you know, oh my gosh, how good looking are we, even <laughs> though we're in a time of great stress and sadness. Um, it is, uh, it, overall, it is a very patient film. It is structured really, um, you know, uh, cleanly in that regard. And so when we see the film, the, the monster, um, you know, more clearly, it is, it, it's more rewarding, I think. 
Yes, uh, with an asterisk. We'll come back to the uh, the creature effects later. Yes. Um, and and so, the way they, the, the little sub-creatures, I think, are a great teaser. To me, that works really well, even though the creatures look a little bit too much like Starship Troopers, uh, buggers. Yeah. Uh, they, me, that, yeah. That's a little bit of a problem. But, yeah. but you know, I, I love the way the, the little, you know, these little satellite creatures come out and give us an introduction to the monster fight without actually revealing the monster. That ends up being a really, um, I think, useful tool um, in, in terms of building toward the big reveal. So Well, especially in the context of, remember, this is a found footage film, so we're stuck with these people for the film. Yep. And unless they're up on the streets directly kind of running back and forth trying to avoid the great big creature, um, you know, once they go underground, I mean, essentially, they're safe. There's nothing um, that can uh, happen to them under there. So by finding a way to introduce these parasites, these giant, you know, bug things, I mean, giant, you know, people-sized bug things, but not like giant, like, Cloverfield city size monsters. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a fun way to introduce that and it keeps that energy going. And I, I really do like that. Um, I do like the story and I really love, like you said, the whole conceit of finding a way to, um, to throw flashbacks in, in a found footage film by using the fact that we're taping over an old story from a month prior when we see our protagonist as he is, um, you know, kind of with this girl that he really likes and we get all this setup of of the two of them um, as they uh, uh, go enjoy some time at uh, at Coney Island, and the very last shot when when you know after they've basically been killed, and the tape kind of you know stops, and we end up watching the rest of their time at Coney Island at the very end of the film before it rolls out. Um, it there's a great little nod there kind of a hint as to how this whole thing started and it's a great you know uh way to not just give us this flashback but also say and this is how the whole thing came to be which i think is really clever yes totally um you know that it's i'm glad you brought that up because it, it that happens like right as she says i had a good day and so it it becomes kind of the the um you know it's kind of the birth of the action of the film that we just saw but it's the emotional end of the film and i think you right. know I, I think that's a really sweet um sweet ending shot yeah and and yeah. in the context of the film it's plausible and that's one of the things that I think really, you know, works for me in this film, that sequence after sequence, um, I, I don't get lost or, or fall out of, um, you know, the the world that they've created for me. There's nothing in here that uh, that makes me just sort of fall out of the world. Um, there are a few things that come pretty close, uh, mm-hmm. but... But overall, I, I let go pretty easily in the beginning of this film, and I'm able to watch all the way through. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, now going to cast and the, the actual characters in the story, you know, I'm a little bit with you, I think, and it could just be an age thing. Maybe I would have enjoyed this cast a lot more uh, if it came out when I was in my early 20s because I would have felt like I was a part of these this group, you know. As it stands, I, I this, do find... The, yeah, this film was Reality Bites for us. It really, yeah, exactly. As it stands, I, I do find them all a bit annoying. I do like HUD, the one who ends up kind of forced to film this entire story. Um, I, although I think one of my biggest problems with the film is 
the his reasoning for continuing to film it i i find it less compelling than the news cameraman in uh, quarantine um I mean, I, I, I can well, yeah, tell me, yeah, tell sometimes. me why, tell me what, cause that's, you know, that's one of the things I was thinking about. Yeah. The only reason he's filming is because at the beginning of the film, uh, after we kind of get this flashback set up and everything, we see that there's this going away party, uh, for their friend, uh, the, the protagonist of the film. He's, he's going away. He's going to be moving to Japan to take a job there. And so everyone's throwing a big going away party. Um, he, the protagonist's brother, hands HUD the camera and says, Hey, I need you to film. I need you to film everything. I need you to, um, you know, talk to everybody here at this party and get them to say something about Rob and kind of sets us off on this thing where, okay, so what's going to be happening here is this, it's like a wedding guy, you know, he's going around talking to everybody and saying, oh, so what are your memories of Rob? What are your memories? And and that whole thing. And that's really his experience with the camera. He's never worked this camera before. He's never, you know, done anything before um, camera-wise, it seems. It's just, you know, he's thrust into this by Rob's brother who doesn't want to do it. And now um, he's walking around interviewing everybody, including uh, Marlena, this girl that he, um, he has a crush on, played by Lizzie Kaplan. Um, that, uh, you know, okay, so that's all kind of cute. We've seen that sort of setup. Anyone who's gone to a wedding has been interviewed by one of these cameramen who's getting you to say, you know, all those cute things about the, that person. But then when disaster strikes and Cloverfield actually escapes from the ship, destroys the Statue of Liberty, and the Statue of Liberty head lands outside of their apartment complex, um, he continues filming. And... I don't know if this were me and I were in this situation where a camera was just thrust into my hands and I was told to just go around filming everybody for the purpose of this going away party. Once disaster struck, I feel like I would put the camera down and just go on about trying to survive. Yeah, the whole people like, are going to need to know yeah. line was... Right. It's yeah. like, who, who are you? All of a sudden a 2020 reporter now? Right. It's like, I, I don't buy into the conceit of that very much. Yes, I I agree with that. I had a problem with that, you know, and and um, but uh, by the same token, I you know, I don't know. It's one of those that uh, I know he's not a professional journalist. I get that. Um, I, I think that the the blow to logic there for me is softened by his humor, and that's one of those things that I think we get in his character, and and in yeah. particular played by uh, as T.J. Miller. Mm-hmm who is a, a very genuinely funny guy yeah. um, that uh, I think it makes it, uh, it makes me look forward to every next sequence because we know in no matter how terrible it is, he's going to say something dumb or funny. That's going to give me a chuckle and, and keep me in the thing. So I, I feel like structurally I look forward to him uh, taking on that role. Even if, you know, I, I feel like it's, they're pounding me a little bit over the head by, you know, his, his sudden, um, you know, jolt of ethics. And, of, and I it, mean, you know. yeah, and I, I would agree with you on that. I mean, I, I, I can buy into it and, you know, it's like once I get past it, I'm fine. I can, I can enjoy the film and I can settle with the conceit because he is a very likable character and he's somebody that's, you know, he does have some funny lines as the cameraman and, you know, I don't know. It just, it does end up working even though I still, you know, think they could have found a better way to get into this thing. Yes. Yeah. So. So. But yeah, I mean, 
other than that, I think I, I think that Drew Goddard, I mean, I, I give him a lot of credit for writing the script. I think he came up with a great, fun story uh, that works pretty well. He's kind of in this, you know, this J.J. Abrams camp that uh, he and Matt Reeves are in. They They all kind of have known each other. I believe actually J.J. Abrams, who uh, produced this, and Matt Reeves knew each other from when they were much younger, uh, like kids making, you know, Super 8 films or something like that. Like they've known each other for quite a long time. And uh, I believe that then they developed uh, Felicity together. And then, uh, so that kind of, uh, you know, that kept them uh, uh, moving and working together. And then Drew Goddard also had been uh, uh, working with them for quite a while. And uh, as, you know, I mean, he's written quite a bit of things for uh, Lost, Alias, Angel, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, I mean, he's clearly been working with them for a while. And then Cloverfield. And then uh, he got his turn writing and directing uh, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah, we like that. Yeah. So it's it's a good group of guys. Definitely a uh, kind of that uh, group of young Hollywood guys who are making fun TV, fun uh, movies. Uh, you know, they're... Yeah, you know, J.J. Abrams, I mean, you know, everybody, I guess now kind of knows who he is because he's, aside from um, making some really great uh, TV shows and movies and stuff like that, um, here he is, this guy who's going to be kind of taking the helm of of uh, Star Wars. Right. So, I mean, I, I think he's kind of really come into his own as this guy who's... Um, kind of the next Steven Spielberg or something like that. You know, he's, he's, he's not just writing, directing, producing projects. Um, and now he's helping develop and create entire, uh, you know, these big franchises. And I, you know, I think he's a good guy for that. I mean, Cloverfield is essentially another franchise that these guys have created because I mean, they are in development on a sequel already. That, you know, I, I don't know. How do you feel? Are you, are you excited about a sequel? I do. I mean, I enjoy this film. It is a fun film to watch, despite the kind of uh, a bit of the annoying uh, people involved. I'm hoping that um, getting a uh, a different group of people maybe in the sequel that I may actually enjoy them more. Um, this is what the plot summary currently is. After the events of which Cloverfield was documented, the government has archived the footage and spreads off into several tangents of storylines. While an investigator searches for the missing footage of a bystander found in footage recovered in formerly known Central Park to uncover any other perspectives of what is being known as the Cloverfield Ground Zero. On the other end, the government is investigating the deep sea drilling company Tagruato and its links to the awakening of an unknown being that may have been caused by the company's owned satellite falling from orbit. Government's deep-sea exploration and DARPA investigators travel backwards in search of the being's origin and how to stop it. That's interesting. So it's actually a kind of like a Pacific Rim. It's a creature from the deep. It's yes. not... I, you know, it's interesting reading this. I had always thought that it, like, was falling from space at the end. Like, yes. it, it crashes down into the sea. Somehow they get it into this tanker. It escapes the tanker and then goes on this rampage. But it turns out it was a satellite falling from sp space. Space, right. Which yeah, awakened so. the angry beast. Yeah, from under the sea, which uh, is interesting because, I mean, it seems to breathe oxygen pretty well. Well, that's one of the things, you know, talking about creature design that I think works so well for this thing is that it is a it's a creature that really genuinely looks like it 
it, it's not comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't. It looks it, like it doesn't the, look like it's naturally meant to exist in a city. <laughs> it doesn't look like it wanted to be disturbed. Like I, I really wouldn't want to disturb this thing. Yeah, you know, I I think it's um, it, it's it, you know it's part of the reason that it it sort of gives it character that that its physical presence looks so kind of awkward and and gangly and unreal that you know no wonder it's messing up the city. It's just you know somebody lead it back to the water. <laughs> well, it's got those elbow joints that like bend the yes. wrong way, so its arms are like uh, I don't right? know. It's, it's a weird it, looking creature. Part of the reason it it throws its weight around is because it's so awkward walking, like it can't walk. Um, <laughs> and so I, you know, I that's, that makes me buy it. You said in the beginning that you put a big asterisk by the creature stuff. What are we talking about there? Well, you know, I think. Uh, I, as much as I do enjoy the creature, and I, I, I think I enjoyed a lot more in the fleeting glimpses that we see, because when we do see the creature, I, I think the first real good glimpse, albeit it's a, still a fairly quick one, is when they dart into the subway, and there's the whole army attacking it, and these guys just barely make it into the subway, but the Clover yeah. comes stomping right over them. That was a tough one for me. That one, and then at the end, when we see Clover as he comes, kind of stands over HUD before he eats him, you know, I feel like the CG is just not quite there for any of the creatures, not just Clover, but all of the parasites and everything. They all look just really kind of not completely rendered. And, and it, I feel like I'm looking at roughs of them. Really? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's there's something because it's it, it's all I mean, the trick with making a film like this that is vastly full of CG. I mean, most of this film was actually filmed in LA. Right. Uh, and, and they, they just digitally created this New York world and everything. When you're filming and you have to digitally replace a lot of stuff on green screen, you have to go through frame by frame and essentially like match every little point of the frame as far as reference points. So that when you put in something else, um, you're, it's going to have the same movement. It's going to have that same, uh, the, whatever the movement is. When you go to shaky cam, that job becomes vastly more difficult yes. because now all of a sudden the camera's all over the place, but they still have to find a way to lock everything in. And I don't know if it's just the fact that they had to spend so much time locking everything. Cause I swear, I, I think that this entire film is taking place in New York City. Nothing in this gives away the fact that this was mostly filmed in L.A. Like, I, I buy into the New Yorkness of this film. Totally. What I don't buy into is the creature all the time. I feel like there are great moments, like when he's fine, when, when the, the stealth flies over and drops all those bombs on it and Clover collapses into the building. That's I the can first, like, that. high, wide shot that we see of Clover walking through right. the city. Toward, you know, we feel like these guys are finally going to escape, and then Clover, you know, gets blasted and everything. Um, uh, that works really well for me. I think it's when we're a lot closer to Clover and we're actually seeing the face that it just ends up looking a lot more CG to me. And I just feel like, like even that last shot of Clover, they weren't planning on putting it in there. They were going to do a much quicker shot as the, basically he turned the camera and Clover happened to be behind him and ate him like just right away. But they opted to spend a little more time on Clover, give the audience a chance to enjoy Clover, which I appreciate because I really enjoy looking at the creature. I just feel like it looks like a CG creature. I don't feel like it's a tangible creature. Like, I I, I don't feel like it's something that just stepped out of Lord of the Rings and is now in New York City. Yeah, no, and that that was going to be my... 
you know, I didn't feel like it was necessarily unfinished. Although, you know, here I am looking at stills on online, just, you know, searching through kind of images, and I, I, I'm getting more of a sense of that. But um, it's that final shot, which, uh, like you, I appreciate being able to get a few seconds to actually, you know, look at Clover. But the creature seems to me um, a touch clean. Does that make sense? Yeah, that might be it. Like, it, it's just, you know, and even it's got a little scarring on it, some cuts, but it just looks a little bit too, um, it looks fine. It does, it, it looks like, um, it looks like a rendered, uh, like a game. Yeah. Um, right. Like a game's interpretation of a really good Rancor monster, you know? Um, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's great, but it, it yeah, I see what you, I see your point. And it's that scene that I actually have the the most kind of trouble with. Um, that I, I want it to be better and it lets us linger so long, uh, you know, that it almost gives us too much time to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, I really do appreciate that they did that, but I feel like if you're going to do that, you have to make sure you have the money to make it look right. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's funny. There's a, there's, there's stumbling on image search. There's a Hasbro's Cloverfield monster and the, the Hasbro monster looks, uh, alarmingly like the monster from the movie. Like they shouldn't be able to get it that right. That's really funny. <laughs> Buy one for the kiddies. Yeah. Right. That's funny. Too funny. Uh, okay, so uh, other elements in terms of just the general. So I mentioned that the problem I had with it was, you know, there were these moments, and like the subway moment when they come up out of the subway and suddenly they're in the middle of a battlefield. Mm-hmm. It it happens so suddenly, like it's such a surprise that nobody turns their head left or right to see that you know there's an army that's getting into position like. 50 feet from us uh, <laughs> to the point that now there are missiles flying overhead. I, I, I find that was just a little bit, a, a little bit too convenient. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it's one that, that frustrates me, but it happens so quickly that we just kind of, I, I move on. Yeah. Uh, and, and luckily there aren't, there aren't too many of those. Uh, but other than that, structurally you feel like the film uh, works. Yeah, I mean, you know, the nature of first person, I think, is really fun to put into something like this, where it's taking kind of this epic story uh, of this massive monster destroying a city and people trying to escape and really narrowing it down to just a very few small group of people. I mean, we've seen movies like this all the time, um, not necessarily in the first person style, which I think is definitely a fun way to do that. You know, I, I, I like the way that... Um, they use first person to put it into this situation that allows them to um, give us a creature film where they are able to hide the creature from us for a vast majority of the time because of the filming style. Yes, absolutely. Um, what is your thought? I, and I don't want to sort of derail too much of this, but what is your thought of making the sequel not in first in first uh, in found footage? Right. I, you know, I don't know. It seems strange to me. It's like, it's, I mean, okay, I guess, yes, it fits within the world of Cloverfield. This story that we just watched happened to be from the point of view of these characters who were filming it as they were living it. Um, and then in the context of that world, sure, 
yes, there is a military that found this tape and now has has locked it uh, up next to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but we can explore this world in, and see other things. Now, that's me looking at it from the, the, the point of view of, of within the film. Sure, there's obviously a much larger scope, and it would be interesting to explore all of that. In the... In our world, looking at it uh, from that perspective where, okay, we have this film Cloverfield that was first-person uh, point-of-view film, uh, found footage style, does it make sense to make a sequel that's not? Uh, I don't know. It, to me, it strikes me as funny. It's like Paranormal Activity works so well because they consistently find ways to make every one of those sequels, whether it's good or bad, uh, still from that first-person point-of-view. I don't know if it's going to work as well with Cloverfield. You know, what makes me actually a bit bullish on it is that I think it works in the context of a universe, right? That if if we if we take as rote that this that the the first film was literally footage found and put into part of a collection of an ongoing investigation and and you know, war against this creature from the deep, that doesn't it stand to reason that other elements of this universe may, you know, that we may actually need to see the story play out um, in, in a way that is um, not explicitly found footage, that, you know, we, we may need to meet some characters that are actually, you know, interacting with the found footage and using it as evidence, like, aren't there investigators, you know, how do we, well, I, I'm not sure that that found footage actually lends itself to a sequel in this case. It, it, it they've, no. they've they've set themselves up to a bit too sophisticated of a of a you know preamble. Well, yeah, that's I mean that's essentially what I was trying to say earlier. Although I think you oh I thought we were disagreeing. No, I think we were agreeing. We're in violent agreement. <laughs> I right. think we're in violent agreement. No, that's what I was saying. Is I I felt like uh, exactly like you just said. Um, <laughs> They, I can see why, like from the story point of view, why it would make sense to to branch out and tell different stories. I just wasn't sure, you know. I I I don't know yes or no if it will work or not, but I can see the reasons for it. All right. Well, clearly, so there. I think you're quite <laughs> astute. <laughs> Take that, uh, sir. Back to Michael Bond villain. Bond villain. Uh, bon villain. Uh, I like this guy. Uh, one of the reasons I like him, because, you know, he did some work on uh, Alias, awesome show, uh, did some work on Fringe. He did the uh, pilot for Fringe. Uh, he did um, Zombieland. He was DP for Zombieland and uh, your favorite and mine, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, what what stands out to you in terms of the cinematography of this film that we have? Nothing done? really. <laughs> <laughs> Except, okay, I, I, I say that jokingly, but, um, I mean, the cinematography itself doesn't stand out. It fits in the context of the found footage sort of film. Um, but a few things that I, I think are of note. Obviously, um, like I said earlier, a huge chunk of this film was filmed on stages in uh, L.A. and just in other L.A. locations that they had to fit into the New York feel i think as a cinematographer he did a great job getting everything set up for the um 
for the visual effects team to come in and do all the replacements that they needed to do. That's obviously a critical part of being a, a cinematographer on these visual effects films is knowing how to do all of that. And I think he did it well. Yeah, you know, there some of the the big like the um, the tentpole scenes uh, or sequences, the the rescue of Beth in yeah. particular was one that I thought worked really well uh the the buildings um had been you know one giant skyscraper leaning against the other uh, right. is a particularly ominous set piece and i think it was covered you know quite well um and apparently on a set that kind of like what we we're talking about with inception where it actually was at a slant and it was such a slant that it was actually making people nauseated because they they couldn't get settled. They just were. Um, they kept feeling like things just weren't right, and so they actually did get people a little ill on that set. <laughs> uh, fun times. Fun times. <laughs> um, but, go ahead. oh, but the other thing about cinematography that I wanted to say is, when you're doing these found footage style films, where you do have ostensibly what is supposed to be really long takes for the most part, right? Uh, unless the person turns the camera off, it's supposed to be just one long shot. Right. The camera, uh, the DP and the camera operators um, become very astute, along with in partnership, I should say, with the director and editor, um, become very astute at finding ways to move the camera where if they know that they move the camera a certain way, kind of a swish pan over here past that pole... Um, that pole might be enough of a point where they can actually cut and they can use it as a transition point to cut to something else. Um, something that I find interesting, and this is something we didn't talk about last week with quarantine, but I think in both of these cases, um, there are probably a lot more completely invisible cuts all through those really long takes that we just never see because they so effectively found a way to shoot them and to edit them together where it's it becomes completely invisible and you could have a long what seems like a long you know 6 10 minute take whatever it is that could have like you know 20 cuts in it for all we know they find ways to blend it and um when you're doing a scene a film like this where you've got long takes in a typical film format where you're not swishing the camera and moving it around so much, you're really stuck with the story. And we've talked about this on a, an episode a while ago, I can't remember which one, but where the filmmaker had long takes. And what you're stuck with is that's it. You have that. You don't, if it's a slow paced take, you're stuck with it. You can't find a way to speed it up because that's what you're, you have to live with. However, um, when you move the camera around as much as you are in this, you end up creating great points where you can actually cut things down. And if you do have a scene that's running long, you can actually find ways to cut things out and whittle it down. So it's it's I think it's very effective uh, techniques to use in these found footage style films that both Quarantine and Cloverfield use quite a bit. The um, uh, you know when we're talking about uh, equipment, mm-hmm. not, I agree with you. And now. I have another. I'm moving on. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you know, and because uh, much of that is because I, this it inspires this next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, ostensibly, you're watching these found footage films. You're you are led to believe that you are looking at this these films on. Well, in this case, you are looking at this film on a uh, off the shelf camcorder. 
And while my understanding is that, you know, some of this film was shot uh, in uh, using off-the-shelf equipment, much of it was shot uh, not on this equipment. Uh, right. That it was it was actually the the highest of the high end uh, of Sony's uh, Cine Alta F twenty three high end camera. What is your sense of um, you know what the what they have to do to make this film look like one piece? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it all boils down to all that uh, work in post and and finding ways to to fit things together and they may have to downgrade images at some point, but um, in order to fit with kind of that, that handy cam uh, footage that they're incorporating into it. But I think for the most part, um, you know, you want to shoot with those more higher end cameras, whether it's a Viper or whatever it is that they're using, because when you have to build these effects into a film, you really need a high quality image so that you can find all the right tracking points. So when you're, the camera is getting switched around, you're tracking all the right information and able to replace all the green screen with the stuff you need. And then you can do whatever you need to do to downgrade that image to match the handy cam footage. It's so it is quite an elaborate process. And I think that for a film like this is where they spent a bulk of their money. Well, it's, Amazing. It's. I mean, I think it's seamless. I. Yeah, it, know, it really is. A, it's a. In that case, I mean, it's. It's a work of art. Yeah, it really is. It's. It's pretty solid. Yeah. Um, and uh, they 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 didn't shoot it on SD cards. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, they didn't. Something <laughs> else that we didn't talk about last week um, is the fact that when you're doing a found footage film, there's really no logical reason to have a film score. You don't have music in them. And in both cases, they use sounds really well, and they just use tension in the scenes and, and to find ways to kind of build uh, build that tension so that you kind of create the moments. Um, something I love about Cloverfield, one of the, my big loves, is the fact that even though there's no score, Michael Giacchino did write kind of a, a Cloverfield overture that does play over the end credits. And I... I really just love that piece of music it is such a great uh just monster music sound to it it's called roar the cloverfield overture and i believe it's just uh something you can download off of itunes great track great great piece of music yeah you know it's i i love the uh you know it's it's like a nod to um just the age probably again um the age of the uh, actors in the film, but this the whole idea that the soundtrack itself was released as Rob's party mix, yeah, right, uh, <laughs> with all of the uh, bands of the day on it. Uh, I thought it was, um, I, I thought that was clever. Yeah, although it's certainly not something I was interested in picking up. <laughs> no, I, I didn't didn't add that to my list, but I thought it was very clever. Uh, yes, mar- again, yes. get back to the marketing. Yes, uh, so. Uh, all right. Who else stands out? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm loath to run through the cast uh, so much. No, I mean, you know, the cast, I think, I think they're effective. Um, I, I mean, effective in context of the story, even though I don't really enjoy that aspect of the film, I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, get tired of this group of people fairly quickly, but, um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, you know, 
Brian Burke and J.J. Abrams are the two producers on the film. Um, Brian Burke is another one who's been with these guys for quite a while. So um, it's just kind of their team. Uh, we talked about uh, Michael Bonvillian. Kevin Stitt did the editing. I think he did a fantastic job, like I was talking about earlier, with the way that they found cut points within the shots. And, you know, I, I think that the uh, the production design, Martin Whist, um, creating all of this New York-looking stuff on the set in order to actually make it look like New York, I, I think is pretty stunning. So I just think, you know, all of those people I, I really uh, tip my hat to, finding a way to shoot a movie in L.A. and make it look so much like New York. I think they did a, a really great job with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the seamless. Um, uh, the, let's see. Uh, in terms of the cast, the one that I did want to note is Jessica Lucas, who's mm-hmm. apparently a singer and an actress from Canada. Uh, she's the, she played Lily in the film, right? Right, right. She was the big eyed alien nurse doctor in the opening sequence of Star Trek. Ah. Yeah, the only reason I bring that up is because I was obsessed with it for the longest time. It was one of those, where have I seen her before? I couldn't picture her with the small eyes. Turns out, yeah, she doesn't really have big eyes in real life. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And she was also recently in uh, in uh, the Evil Dead remake. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And she's coming up in Pompeii. Didn't that already come out and disappear? Exactly. Yes. Is that, did it really? <laughs> it did. That's, uh, yes. Is that out now? <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's out and gone. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's how good that one did. Oh. Not, not quite it opened the Titanic on February hoping. 21st. That was, that was some time ago. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, I'll have to send a card. There you go. There you go. Uh, what else do you have? Anything else on your list? You know, I, I, I think that's about it. I mean, you know, other than I, I, I do, I'm just always impressed with the effects of this film. I do like the way it builds to that ending where, uh, you get the actual direct confrontation with the creature in the park. Um, I am just always a little underwhelmed by, um, the creature. I, I mean, I, as much as I love the creature, I'm underwhelmed by the actual, um, effects work of the creature. I always feel like by the time we get to that point, I really want just a perfect looking creature. I don't want one that looks a little kind of uh, not quite there. Even the, even, I mean, I'll go so far as saying even the Statue of Liberty's head when it's laying in the ground always looks fake to me. I mean, I enjoy it. I think that's pretty cool and it's a great scene, but it never looks like it's, uh, you know, a real Statue of Liberty head. It looks like a video game. Yeah, again, a really solid render. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I can I can buy that. That's, uh, although, I don't know. I don't know how to, that's one of those things that I don't know how to rationalize what it would look like. I, I've never seen it that close, so you're yeah. right. But but at least it would look more in 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 place. Yes, it doesn't look in place in, in right. some angles yeah. uh you know for me the film really is it it holds up as a found footage film and i think that's really where it, it moves the genre forward by uh, applying some of these techniques uh to to let us look 
uh, at time in a found footage film in a whole new way. And I think it really um, applies a new sense of cleverness at just the right doses. Um, uh, and so I appreciate the film on that level. Um, I do. Uh, I love the pacing of the film and the structure of the film. And I, it's still a film that I have trouble saying I'm going to put this on uh, often because I get so annoyed with the people in it. <laughs> so quickly so it moves a lot of things forward and it still can get kind of tedious to watch yeah i agree that's where i am that's where you'll uh, stay it did uh it did fairly well in the box office this one did uh definitely did better than quarantine did i mean this is much higher up on our uh list of films uh let's see this film cost um it almost a little more than than twice what quarantine did 25 million for this film and then 37 million for prints and advertising so it's they, pretty uh, short yeah. right at 84 minutes yeah it's it's just a little 84 minute movie and actually quarantine was pretty short too so i mean that's definitely a benefit especially in our line of thinking as far as cost per finished minute that definitely helps it move up on on our rankings uh so all told they spent 62 million dollars on this film and uh, they made domestically just over eighty million, and internationally just over ninety million. So total gross was almost one hundred seventy-one million dollars. Adjusted, that'd be about one hundred eighty-four million dollars. And when you look at it um, per finished minute, it's adjusted at about one point four million dollars per finished minute. Oof! Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. Yeah. Uh, where does that put it on the list? It is number 25. All right. Right under When Harry Met Sally, right above Panic Room. Excellent. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com if you want to uh, join us in the ranking process. Friend us over there, and we can uh, we can compare lists. We should totally compare lists. It'd be fun. Yes, indeed. Let's do it. All right, Cloverfield or The Bourne Ultimatum. Didn't we just have that one? <laughs> I feel like we had that same one last uh, week. I would say the Bourne Ultimatum. I would say the Bourne Ultimatum. Uh, Cloverfield or Yee, a one and a two. I would say Cloverfield. I would say Cloverfield. I think it's just the length of Yee is what keeps me <laughs> off. Cloverfield or Panic Room? I would say Panic Room. Me too, even though it made less money per finished minute. Yeah. <laughs> There's no accounting for taste. Uh, that's right. Cloverfield, or it happened one night. This is feeling very similar feeling to last week. Very familiar. We yeah. may end up having a neck, neck and neck yeah. thing. Cloverfield, or it happened one night. Uh, Cloverfield. Yeah, I probably. Gosh, I feel guilty saying that, you know, but, but I'm gonna <laughs> Cloverfield <laughs> or a league of their own. I feel like this one. I would actually do a league of their own. I, you know, I think so too. There is no crying in baseball. There is no crying baseball. Cloverfield. Oh, this is interesting. Cloverfield or Alien 3. Mm. Interesting sci-fi films. Both have their problems. Yeah. Wow. Um, I have a hard time with this because I have less of a problem with the cast of Alien 3. Uh, and so I find it... More watchable, mm-hmm. despite it, it having some uh, some problems with the uh, the story and uh, some much worse looking creature effects. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I I, th- I I still think I'm I'm going Alien Three. 
Yeah, I feel like I am too. All right, Cloverfield or the game? The game. Yeah, totally the game. There we are, number 87. Still cracked at top 100. Out of 126. Quarantine uh, is still in the 80s. It's at number 81. So they're both they're both in there. All right. All right. This was good. Where do we go from here? We're going to continue uh, our uh, fun time with these movies, and we're going to uh, talk about Chronicle. I can't wait to talk about this one, especially now that we've watched these two. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm really I, it, it'll be nice to see. It, it's a little bit of a different change in genre as far as the found footage films. So uh, yeah. it's, it's going, I mean, we've kind of had a, a nice variety. I mean, Quarantine, really the the horror haunted house style uh, found footage film. Cloverfield, is, I mean, it, there's some horror, but really it's Mostly kind of it's a, cre- a, monster. It's a creature, it's a creature, creature. film. Yeah. yeah. And then Chronicle is a little bit more of kind of a, you know, a, a superhero sort of movie. Right, right. Superhero thriller. Yeah, so it'll be fun to explore that one. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. And then the romantic comedy found footage film with Troll Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that's so maybe not sweet. <laughs> All right, that's coming next week. Uh, I think we're done. I think so. Hey. I think we. We hit all the points and talked about every little creature we saw in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> is this the wine talking? I'm uh, wondering. I, is, yeah, I've had what, a few. What happened? Of, I don't know. <laughs> what Fall happened apart, to Andy? Man. You Fall go. Apart. I need to go. Cur- I need to go to bed. You go to bed. Ooh, this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.